Hello, everybody, and welcome into episode number 106 of the Bible Reading Podcast. Today's big Bible questions are, how do we handle controversial scripture? Must women be silent and modest? What's up with that? We're also going to be talking about praying for people in authority. So happy Monday, friends. How was your celebration of the resurrection yesterday? Ours was obviously pretty radically different. For one, the quarantine. For two, all of us, my whole family, lived in Alabama until the summer of 2018. So this was only our second Easter apart from our family back home in Dixie. Our church was not able to gather together in person in one room or place, but two interesting things did happen today. First, on the live stream of our church's Easter celebration, which if you're interested, you could catch at on Facebook, just search for VBC, that's Victor Bravo Charlie, VBC Salinas, it's Valley Baptist Church of Salinas, we had so many people play a role on our live stream. There were three different worship teams, one a husband and wife team with a friend who led from our church building, another one of our deacons leading from his home, and then my wife and our two eldest daughters leading from our house with an assist from my son reading scripture. In addition to that, we had testimonies and encouraging words and scriptures from at least seven or eight other families, uh, some husbands and wives included, and then uh, we closed it all off with a short message from me. I was exhilarated and encouraged by hearing from so many of our church family. Uh, one of the things these live streams have done for us is we've had just the most interactive and great uh, participation over video. It's really been kind of cool. I, it's not nearly as great as being there in person, but we've had some great prayer times. And today, it just was really heartwarming to hear from so many people. And I've heard other people were kind of encouraged by it, too. Of course, there were technical difficulties and there were hiccups and all those kind of things that you don't encounter when you're in church together, but it was something. As we discussed last week, the church isn't just made up of a pastor and a worship team, but a whole family gifted to reach the lost, build each other up, and serve the king. And we had, I don't know, 15 or so people participate in the service today. And I'll just be honest with you, as a pastor, that pumps me up. And then we had an extra treat in the afternoon. My wife and daughters, and it was actually, I think this was my wife's idea, or our neighbor, one of the two, they joined together with our pastor uh, friend neighbor, next door neighbor, and his family for a time of worship outside in the afternoon. My wife leads some worship, and the pastor friend next door, Jason, he leads some worship as well. And so their family set up in their yard, and our family set up in our yard, and we actually maintained more than six feet of social distancing and even some other neighbors came by and joined in, all again maintaining more than six feet of social distancing. We were outside, not in the same yard with each other. We had one family across the street, another family that was on the sidewalk, another family that was sitting on the wall of our neighbor's house. And I got to tell you, it wasn't like a huge crowd, but four churches were represented. We were just outside in our front yard in our neighborhood in California. It wasn't the most polished worship set ever because... The two people playing couldn't clearly hear each other because we were so far away from each other. We didn't have an amp or anything like that. It had rained right before. And so there was these little problems. But I got to tell you, man, it was amazing. And it was exhilarating. And it brought tears to my eyes. And sometimes I couldn't even sing just because it was so joyful singing together with other believers on Easter Day in the front yard of our house in California. Our together celebration, though, was lowered 
Normally, there'd be a lot more uh, families getting together all across the city, all across the world. But I got to tell you, with a lot of our church people, with our house, our proclamation of the resurrection of Jesus was increased in a variety of ways. People decorated their houses, wrote messages on their sidewalks and their cars and made posters. Uh, and it was fantastic. We had a guy bring around signposts, Johnny, who brought signposts to some of our houses to make posters and stuff like that. And the people just proclaimed the gospel to their neighbors. That's awesome. All right. Well, as you might have noticed, I sometimes steer clear of controversy on this podcast. There's kind of a reason for that, and it's not really that I want to avoid controversy. In fact, I usually kind of think controversy is interesting, and given a choice between boring or interesting, I'll almost always take interesting. But the main reason I steer a little bit clear of controversy is because biblical controversy is best handled in a local church setting in the midst of relationships and leadership and communication and pastoring where questions and discussions can kind of happen face-to-face and unfold via a relationship that you're walking out together. And as much as I like podcasts and as much as I like listening to podcasts and doing podcasts, a podcast just doesn't allow that sort of dynamic to happen. Now, I don't avoid every controversial passage, but like I said, I do dance around a few that I'd be much more open to covering in our local church context. Now, that said, we're not going to steer so broadly around controversy today. We're actually going to turn the bow of this ship into the storm. We're not going straight into the middle of the storm, and by that metaphor, I do mean I'm not going to answer every possible objection and issue some might have with First Timothy 2, but I do want to give at least the beginnings of an answer. So, batten down the hatches. Our Bible readings today for the 13th are Leviticus 17, Psalms 20 and 21, Proverbs 31, and 1 Timothy chapter 2. And I'm actually going to read 1 Timothy chapter 2 right now, then we're going to come back and discuss it. 1 Timothy 2 verse 1, first of all then I urge that petitions, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for everyone, for kings and all those who are in authority, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. This is good, and it pleases God our Savior, who wants everyone to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and humanity, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, a testimony at the proper time. For this I was appointed a herald, an apostle, I'm telling the truth, I'm not lying, and a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Therefore I want the men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or argument. Also, the women are to dress themselves in modest clothing, with decency and good sense, not with elaborate hairstyles, gold pearls, or expensive apparel, but with good works, as is proper for women who profess to worship God. A woman is to learn quietly with full submission. I do not allow a woman to teach or have authority over a man. Instead, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and transgressed. But she will be dis- she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with good sense. So, did you catch anything controversial there? There's a lot. There's politics. There's sexual things. And I mean, like gender sorts of things. And ha! Huh, wow. First Timothy chapter two is quite the controversial passage. Who does Paul think he is to tell women how to dress and to be silent? Well. 
I'm not going to dive super deep into this, but I do want to share a couple of things here. In 1 Timothy 2, Paul does indeed tell women to dress in kosmios, that's a Greek word, kosmios apparel. Now, this is kind of a difficult word to translate well because it only appears twice in the Bible. Another time it appears is just one chapter later, 1 Timothy 3, verse 2, which says an overseer or elder, pastor is what I think that's referring to, must be above reproach. The husband of one wife, self-controlled, sensible, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not an excessive drinker, not a bully but gentle, not quarrelsome, not greedy. Now, our key word, cosmios, there is the word that is translated respectable in 1 Timothy 3. So the same word that's translated modest in 1 Timothy 2 is translated respectable in 1 Timothy 3. So Paul in one passage tells women to dress in that way, and in the second passage tells church leaders to behave and have this kind of character. It can mean sensible or modest or appropriate. So, Who does this guy think he is? And the answer is that he is, under the inspiration and the direction of the Holy Spirit, writing the words and the commands of God. That's what the Word of God is for. It is to tell us how God wants us to live, how to please Him. Sometimes that manifests itself in how we dress, sometimes in how we behave. We're followers of God, and we follow Him via His Word. So, what is Paul saying here? Well, in the next chapter, he's going to tell pastors and church leaders, you have to be sensible. And in this chapter, he tells women to dress in a sensible or appropriate or modest way. Now, there's not a lot of details there, but obviously what is being forbidden is a, a very um, a very expensive sort of way that shouts out wealth and power and privilege that Paul is saying, hey, you don't want to dress like that. Instead, dress sensible. And pastors, you don't want to act ridiculous and um, ostentatious and extravagant. Instead, act sensible, modest, and appropriate. So he's telling men what to do in their behavior and women how to dress. And like, you know, you might have a problem with that, but here's the thing. We're followers of God, like I said, and we follow him via his word. For instance, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 says, All scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So, I hear you saying, I guess some of that makes sense, but what about this women must be silent business? That just sounds ridiculous, sexist, and old-fashioned. I'm offended. And you know what? I can appreciate where you're coming from, but... I actually don't think sexism is the right conclusion here, and I think that I can come pretty close to proving that for most people. So first, allow me to say this. Um, I am what is called a biblical complementarian, theologically speaking. That's sort of opposed to the viewpoint of egalitarianism. Now, that means I believe that God has given men and women equal worth, equal worth and value but different roles in the earthly kingdom of God. Not everybody agrees with that, but I believe that is what the Bible teaches pretty clearly, and it is beautiful when it's practiced biblically with no hint of selfish sexism. Let's take another controversial passage, Ephesians 5, 22 through 24. 
which says, Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, because the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church. He is the Savior of the body. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives are to submit to their husbands in everything. Whoa, 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 Paul. How can it not be sexist to ask wives to submit to their husbands? Have you met men? You know, yeah, I get it. I do get it. But let's back out a little bit further and see this passage in its fuller context in Ephesians 5, starting with 22, and I don't know, let's go all the way to 33. Paul says, submit to one another in the fear of Christ. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, because the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. He is the Savior of the body. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives are to submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her to make her holy, cleansing her with the washing of water by the word. He did this to present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or anything like that, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands are to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hates his own flesh, but provides and cares for it, just as Christ does for the church, since we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This mystery is profound, but I am talking about Christ and the church. To sum up, each one of you is to love his wife as himself, and the wife is to respect her husband. So I think that gives us a little bit clearer of a picture as to what is going on here. Paul calls wives to submit to their husbands, and I believe that is the word of God. But, keep reading, Paul then calls husbands to love their wives like Christ loved the church, by providing and caring for her. How did Christ take care of his church? Well, for one, by dying for it. So, wives are called to submit, husbands are called to sacrifice. Which of these two S words are easier? Is it easier to sacrifice your wants and needs and desires and safety and physical well-being for another person? To endure pain for them so that they don't have to? To utterly give yourself for them? Or is it easier to submit to a person, an imperfect person? And the fact is, both of those things are really, really hard. Now, you might believe, hey, husbands and wives should equally submit to each other and equally sacrifice for each other. Of course, you're entitled to your opinion, but that's really not how the Bible lays it out. One is called to submit, the other is called to sacrifice. Husbands must sacrifice themselves for their wives Wives are called to submit to their husbands. Now, is that sexist? I think a husband demanding submission who is unwilling to sacrifice is sexist and sinful and abhorrent and a perversion of what the Bible teaches about marriage. The greatest possible perversion of marriage is husband-to-wife physical or mental or emotional abuse, that a man could be called to sacrifice for himself for his wife, and rather than do that, he abuses her, that is an abomination, it is infuriating, and such men will face incredibly harsh judgment. They should be in jail on earth, period, and tortured in eternity. Now, the maybe the second worst abuse of marriage possible is when a wife who is, I mean, a husband is supposed to 
love his wife sacrificially, he actually just expects her to treat him like a king and submit to him and take care of all his needs, etc. Because really, it's sort of the reverse of that. Yes, a wife is called to submit to her husband, but a husband is called to take care of his wife's needs and that sort of thing. So, something to think about. I think a wife who demands for her husband sacrifice himself for her in the way that Christ laid down his life for the church and then refuses to follow his godly leadership is also sexist in a sort of a way. The fact is, husbands, according to the Bible, husbands are to bear the bulk of sacrifice in the relationship Though wives, I think, should sacrifice for their husbands from time to time in certain ways, and wives are to bear the bulk of their of the submission in the relationship, though husbands should certainly submit to their wives in things from time to time, as is fitting in an Ephesians 5.22 sort of way. That is what I believe the Bible teaches. Now, does that make me sexist? I don't think so. But you can feel free to think of me that way if you want to. Ultimately, I want to please God and I want to love my wife well. And I want to sacrifice for her well and not be a jerk husband, but to be a serving husband. All right, back to the silence thing. First of all, let me say, and I don't know how to say this. I I don't want to say, let me say humbly, because I don't know that I'm being humble here. But I think what I'm about to say is accurate, but I tremble a little bit to say it. I believe the translators of the King James Version somehow missed it when they translated translated the Greek word hezukia, which is the word used here, as silence. I think the translators of the CSB and many other modern translations got the sense of the word much better by using the word quiet. I don't believe that Paul is here forbidding women to speak in the least. First of all, etymologically, the word itself, the Greek word, hezukia, comes from a root word that actually means to be settled. For instance, let's consider a passage that uses the same exact word. Paul in 2 Thessalonians 3.12, I think we read it last week, he says, We command and exhort such people by the Lord Jesus Christ to work quietly, hezukia, and provide for themselves. Now, 2 Thessalonians 3.12 is 2 Thessalonians 3.12, which is directed at men and women, a command to be silent? Of course, I don't think so. It doesn't appear that way. Silent doesn't make any sense whatsoever in that passage, but quiet does. Being settled does. And that's how it's translated there. Since Paul is writing to Timothy about pastoring, and since he's about to introduce the topic of elders and pastors, I believe the context in 1 Timothy 2 is about how women should act during a church gathering when they are being taught. I note here that the same exact word, hezukia, is used of men in Acts 22, 1 and 2. Paul says, Brothers and fathers, listen now to my defense before you. When they, the men listening, heard that he was addressing them in Aramaic, they became even quieter. So it's more hezukia. In other words, they settled down and listened. They were being quiet, which seems, you know, somewhat appropriate for some church services, although I actually kind of like interaction and teaching quite often, question and answer, that sort of thing, and amens and what have you, as Jesus did and Paul did and others, they seem to appreciate that sort of thing, especially Jesus, and I think you can do that sort of thing and still be obeying the command to be quiet. I think it means in the context to not have uh, unedifying outbursts and draw attention to yourself, etc. I think that's what the modesty thing is about, too. It's wearing clothes that don't try to draw attention to yourself in a sort of, hey, look at me sort of way. So, 
Is Paul telling women to dress modestly, be quiet, and submit? Yeah, it all depends on how you frame it. Framed in a biblical way, those commands make sense and are lovely and beneficial for all. Paul does indeed tell men to work in a quiet, sensible manner, to submit to all governing authorities, to sacrifice for their wives, to be gentle to them and never harsh, to not ever be bitter with their wives, and to love and take care of her in the same way that the husband takes care of himself. Now, beloved, I hope this doesn't shock you too much. There are commands in the Bible from God. Some of them are written to women. Some of them are written to men, some to children. Some, actually many of them, are written to pastors and shepherds and leaders of God's people. Some are written to followers. Some are written to moms. Some are written to dads. Some are written to bosses. Some are written to workers. Some are written to government officials. This is what is meant by the Lordship of Christ. It's what is meant by following him. If you don't want to be told how to live life and what to do, you're going to struggle with the Bible and following Jesus completely. If you think you can pick and choose some verses and commands to really, really love and follow and then rule the others out as archaic and dated, then God isn't really the Lord of your life. You are. When you pick and choose what you like and don't like, you are the arbiter of your behavior in that scenario. And that sort of approach, it doesn't really work as workers in the workplace. It doesn't work as law-abiding citizens under traffic laws or whatever. It doesn't work as students in school. It doesn't work as soldiers in the military. And it sure doesn't work under the authority of the King of Kings. Is he good? Do you trust him? Is he really working all things together for the good of those who know him and are called according to his purpose, as Romans 8.28 says? Yes, he is. So follow him and trust him and trust his ways and commands. It's not easy to sacrifice for my wife, but I must. I'm sure it can often be difficult for her to follow my leadership uh, for a variety of reasons, but I can sure help with that by sacrificing for her, by being gentle, by taking care of her, by loving her, by listening to her, by cherishing her, and by never ever being bitter or harsh with her or the kids, of course. Now, one more thing, kind of shifting gears a little bit. The beginning of this passage is important and pretty often ignored by Christians. I can't think of a time in my lifetime that it has been more important for Christians to walk in and embrace the whole truth and counsel of the beginning of 1 Timothy 2, which says this, First of all, then, I urge that petitions, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for everyone, for kings and all those who are in authority, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. This is good, and it pleases God our Savior, who wants everyone to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Brothers and sisters, this is an hour to pray for our leaders. Whatever you think of our president and vice president and governor and congressional leaders and honestly, the the hospital leaders and Dr. Fauci and Dr. Collins and other people like that, the head of the CDC, CDC, hit your knees and pray for them. Let me be very clear. This is not a partisan text in the least. And if you take it that way, just I hate to tell you this, but you're missing it. It means that Christians should have been crying out to God for Barack Obama and Bill Clinton with the same amount of vigor and fervor as they cry out to God for Donald Trump and George W. Bush and vice versa. There is not a president beyond the reach of God's hand, nor is there a world leader that we should not pray for. 
So allow me to close with some thoughts from a much younger John Piper on our calling as Christians to pray for our world leaders and allow me to challenge you to raise the level of your prayers for our leaders. In these desperate times, we need to pray that our leaders are repenting, that they are listening to wisdom, that they seek the Lord and that God would work mightily through them. Not just our favorite politicians, but all of them. You know what? If I'm a sailor on a boat that is going through a terrible storm and the ship's in danger of seeking, even if I have a number of disagreements with our ship's captain, uh, maybe I don't like what he stands for or whatever, you better believe I'm going to be rooting for him and praying for him in the midst of the storm because uh, I don't want to go down with the ship. That's logical. Plus, we have this clear command from Scripture to pray for our leaders, and there's no exceptions to it. So Piper says this, After Paul is stressed that we pray for all men, he singles out kings and all in high positions to make sure that we include them. Why? It's clear from verses 4 through 7 that Paul wants to emphasize that what Paul wants to emphasize is that nobody be excluded from our goodwill. Nobody is beyond the grace of God. Why then do the kings and those in high positions come in for special mention? I can see at least two reasons, says Piper. The first is that these people had characteristics that made it especially difficult for the early Christians and for us to pray for them. For example, they were so distant, so remote, if not in actual miles, then at least in accessibility. It's hard to pray earnestly for someone you don't know and especially hard to pray for somebody you never see. Yet this difficulty must be overcome, Paul says. You must pray for them. Emperors like Nero, proconsuls like Gallio, governors like Pilate, kings like Herod, they may seem remote and inaccessible, but remember, they are not remote and inaccessible to God. And by prayer, you can get as close as one of their intimate advisors. Another characteristic that makes rulers hard to pray for is that they are often godless men and sensitive to the promptings of the Holy Spirit. This was almost universally true in Paul's day, and in most countries around the world today, I think it still would be true. I'm not automatically enthused, says Piper, when a politician claims to have had a religious experience. It does not matter where or when we have lived to obey God's command to pray for all in high positions will involve us in praying for many people indifferent or hostile to our faith. But this should not cause us to hesitate one moment to pray for them. First, because God may save them and bring them to a knowledge of truth. And second, because God uses rulers to accomplish his purposes whether they believe in him or not. When God wanted to punish his rebellious people Israel, he turned the haughty king of Assyria into the rod of his anger in Isaiah 10.5 and stirred him up to attack Israel. Once, Nebuchadnezzar, the great king of Babylon, said to himself, Is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? Daniel 4.30 And God took away his reason and made him eat grass like an ox until he learned his lesson. The dominion of the Most High is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, What are you doing? No king, no president, no premier, no ayatollah can stay the hand of the Lord when he has purposed to do a thing. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. Proverbs 21.1 Many are the plans of the mind of a man, of a king, says Piper, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will be established, Proverbs 19.21. Therefore, we have strong encouragement to pray for kings and for all in high positions, whether they are believers or not, 
because our God reigns and none can stay his hand. That is a good word. May it sink deep into our hearts. Leviticus chapter 17 verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses, speak to Aaron, his sons, and all the Israelites and tell them, this is what the Lord has commanded. Anyone from the house of Israel who slaughters an ox, sheep, or goat in the camp or slaughters it outside the camp, instead of bringing it to the entrance to the tent of meeting to present it as an offering to the Lord before his tabernacle, that person will be considered guilty. He has shed blood and is to be cut off from his people. This is so the Israelites will bring to the Lord the sacrifices they have been offering in the open open country. They are to bring them to the priest at the entrance of the tent of meeting and offer them as fellowship sacrifices to the Lord. The priest will then splatter the blood on the Lord's altar at the entrance of the tent of meeting and burn the fat as a pleasing aroma to the Lord. They must no longer offer their sacrifices to the goat demons that they have prostituted themselves with. This will be a permanent statute for them throughout their generations. Say to them, Anyone from the house of Israel or from the aliens who reside among them who offers a burnt offering or a sacrifice but does not bring it to the entrance to the tent of meeting to sacrifice it to the Lord, that person is to be cut off from his people. Anyone from the house of Israel or from the aliens who reside among them who eats any blood, I will turn against that person who eats blood and cut him off from his people. For the life of a creature is in the blood, and I have appointed it to you to make atonement on the altar for your lives, since it is the lifeblood that makes atonement. Therefore I say to the Israelites, none of you and no alien who resides among you may eat blood. Any Israelite or alien residing among them who hunts down a wild animal or bird that may be eaten must drain its blood and cover it with dirt, since the life of every creature is its blood. I have told the Israelites, you are not to eat the blood of any creature because the life of every creature is its blood. Whoever eats it must be cut off. Every person, whether the native or the resident alien who eats an animal that died a natural death or was mauled by wild beast is to wash his clothes and bathe with water, and he will remain unclean until evening, then he will be clean. But if he does not wash his clothes and bathe himself, he will bear his iniquity. Psalm chapter 20. May the Lord answer you in a day of trouble. May the name of Jacob's God protect you. May he send you help from the sanctuary and sustain you from Zion. May he remember all your offerings and accept your burnt offering. May he give you what your heart desires and fulfill your whole purpose. Let us shout for joy at your victory and lift the banner in the name of our God. May the Lord fulfill all your requests. Now I know that the Lord gives victory to his anointed. He will answer him from his holy heaven with mighty victories from his right hand. Some take pride in chariots and others in horses, but we take pride in the name of the Lord our God. They collapse and fall, but we rise and stand firm. Lord, give victory to the king. May he answer us on the day that we call. Psalm 21. Lord, the king finds joy in your strength. How greatly he rejoices in your victory. You have given him his heart's desire and have not denied the request of his lips. Selah. For you meet with him with rich blessings. You place a crown of pure gold on his head. He asked you for life and you gave it to him. Length of days forever and ever. His glory is great through your victory. You confer majesty and splendor on him. You give him blessings forever. You cheer him with joy in your presence. For the king relies on the Lord. Through the faithful love of the Most High, he is not shaken. Your hand will capture all your enemies. Your right hand will seize those who hate you. You will make them burn like a fiery furnace when you appear. The Lord will engulf them in his wrath and fire will devour them. You will wipe their progeny from the earth and their offspring from the human race. 
Though they intend to harm you and devise a wicked plan, they will not prevail. Instead, you will put them to flight when you ready your bowstrings to shoot at them. Be exalted, Lord, in your strength. We will sing and praise your might. Proverbs 31. The words of King Lemuel and a pronouncement that his mother taught him. What should I say, my son? What, son of my womb? What, son of my vows? Don't spend your energy on women or your efforts on those who destroy kings. It is not for kings, Lemuel. It is not for kings to drink wine or for rulers to desire beer. Otherwise, he will drink, forget what is decreed, and pervert justice for all the oppressed. Give beer to the one who is dying and wine to one whose life is bitter. Let him drink so that he can forget his poverty and remember his trouble no more. Speak up for those who have no voice, for the justice of all who are dispossessed. Speak up, judge righteously, and defend the cause of the oppressed and needy. Who can find a wife of noble character? She is far more precious than jewels. The heart of her husband trusts in her, and he will not lack anything good. She rewards him with good, not evil, all the days of her life. She selects wool and flax and works with willing hands. She is like the merchant ships, bringing her food from far away. She rises while it is still light and provides food for her husband and portions for her female servants. She evaluates a field and buys it. She plants a vineyard with her earnings. She draws on her strength and reveals that her arms are strong. She sees that her profits are good and her lamp never goes out at night. She extends her hands to the spinning staff and her hands hold the spindle. Her hands reach out to the poor and she extends her hands to the needy. She is not afraid for her household when it snows for all in her household are doubly clothed. She makes her own bed coverings. Her clothing is fine linen and purple. Her husband is known at the city gates where he sits among the elders of the land. She makes and sells linen garments. She delivers belts to the merchants. Strength and honor are her calling, and she can laugh at the time to come. Her mouth speaks wisdom, and loving instruction is on her tongue. She watches over the activities of her household and is never idle. Her children rise up and call her blessed. Her husband also praises her. Many women have done noble deeds, but you surpass them all. Charm is deceptive and beauty is fleeting, but a woman who fears the Lord will be praised. Give her the reward of her labor and let her works praise her at the city gates. Well, brothers and sisters, let us all be those who fear the Lord and be praised for that. Let us pray for our leaders and all who are in power. And Lord God, send a breakthrough in this coronavirus situation. We are weary. Our eyes are turned to you. Let our leaders repent and turn to you. Give them wisdom that our countries would walk in it. Lord, save us from this scourge. In Jesus' name, God bless you, friends, and Godspeed.